Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something. And I hope you'll be inspired to write because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. All right, everyone, we are back for another episode of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. I'm very excited for our guest today. Really excited. We're going to talk about so many things. So I'm going to have her introduce herself. Hello. How are you doing? Hi. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Gail Carragher. I'm an author. Yeah, I guess that's why I'm here. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I write a lot of stuff. I've been writing fiction for 12 years now, and about 10 of those, it's been my full-time job. I come out of academia. I know. It's great. Uh, It's very unexpected. I did not ever anticipate or even really want to become a full-time writer, but maybe we'll talk about that. Yeah. I write science fiction, fantasy, romance, and young adult, uh, which I tend to just label as commercial genre fiction. (laughs) <laughs> and I have written one nonfiction book, which is for authors, which is called The Heroine's Journey, which is yes. basically a rebuttal to Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yes. And we are definitely going to talk about The Heroine's Journey because I keep talking to people about this. Because <laughs> <laughs> as we talk on the show about like getting better at our writing, this is definitely a book that can help us do that. But first, we want to talk about all the different things that you write, because first of all, how did you become a novelist? Because in your bio, you said that you were studying it. And- archaeology. I'm an archaeologist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm thinking like, yeah, you out there with a brush in the desert yeah. or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What- Straight up, yes. <laughs> um, I have a laboratory, but like uh, I went to the lab pretty early, but I do work in field labs, which means we go out into the field and we're adjacent to the field. And so I, I have gone and looked at a ceramic pot and excavated it with a brush. Yes. That image in your head, you can imagine me doing it. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. So that is what you went to school for? To the university That's what I went to school for. Yeah. I'm highly, I have two master's degrees, one in an MS and an MA, both in um, archaeology or archaeology tangential fields. And I was two years out from my PhD uh, when I stopped and <laughs> became a full-time writer instead. So okay. yeah. And I love it. I, I, I love both my careers. Still miss archaeology occasionally. Yeah, it was it was a hard decision to make, but I think we should all be so lucky as to get to pick between two careers that we genuinely love and are passionate yeah. about. So, yeah, um, I don't have any regrets, even as I miss it occasionally. But yeah, that was that's my former former identity, Your former life. So, were you just writing for fun while mm-hmm. going out and digging, like between digs? You, yeah, yeah, I've always <laughs> written fiction. I wrote fiction for as long as I can remember, including like when my mom would read me things when I was a kid, I would, if I didn't like the ending, I would like make up a new ending for it, which should tell you something. If it didn't end it happily, I was going to make it end happily. I was like, <laughs> my, my, you should have known. But yeah, so I've always written, but I also grew up kind of in a sort of hippy dippy commune tangential kind of unincorporated small town. And, uh, surrounded by poets and other artists. And I was like, well, that's not a smart life choice. So it's like, I'm never going to do that. Nothing to do with the creative endeavor. Uh, so I was like, right, academia, very lucrative. But <laughs> yeah, as one does, they go and become an archaeologist. <laughs> yeah, as, as you do. I was like, that's what I, 
Uh, but I've also always really been passionate about history and I just love the idea of touching history. Yeah. And I'm also a ceramicist by training. And so I parlayed those two together and my field of study and expertise is in ceramic analysis. So that's, that's, which meant, which basically meant I got to go lots of different places all around the world whenever they had something that was like tangential to my expertise, which happens to be a kiln transition technology. So when sites find something they think might be a kiln or whatever, I used to be one of the people that you'd think of to call in. Well, that's a smart, if you like traveling, that's a smart way to go. Oh yeah. Yeah. I would say, uh, I, the thing I thought I would miss would be traveling, but I actually travel more as a writer than I ever did as an archaeologist. I would just stay longer in places when I was an archaeologist. Right. And you get to choose, right? (laughs) Well, sort of, I definitely pick and choose now as well for where I travel. Like I'll get a, couple of offers for like an international event or something and I'll be like shall we go to Poland or France this year <laughs> I, you know like that kind of thing that's awesome well so in 2009 you wrote your first one it yes. got, pu- that's when it it got came published out. that's when it came yeah. out so soulless yeah. is that technically a fantasy like you have <laughs> the great question <laughs> these are all these giant genres and then there's smaller genre. Uh, so I genuinely am one of those weirdos who did an everything but the kitchen sink book. I seriously thought it would never sell. So I've been in and out of fandom my whole life as well. I always went to like sci-fi cons and stuff like that. So I kind of knew a lot about the book industry and like how it worked and marketing and all that sort of thing. And so when I wrote Solace, it was just like an itch I needed to scratch, get it over with. And um, I, I really thought nobody would want to buy it from me out of traditional publishing because it is everything but the kitchen sink. So it is a co- technically it's a comedy of manners, romance, chassis, but it is steampunk. But it was written like very early on in second wave steampunk. So my house actually acquired it without really knowing what steampunk was, <laughs> it's, which is basically retro futurism, which is an alt history kind of thing, you know, and then it's my stuff is very funny, usually, especially this the first couple of series is. And then, um, yeah, so it's just like a little bit, there's a bit of a mystery. Like there's, It's just a little bit of everything. Yeah. It's just a bunch, it's urban fantasy. There was a bunch of stuff I love just like thrown into this thing. And I was like, it'll work or it won't. And I just wrote it to amuse myself. And then I was trying to practice discipline and non-perfectionist discipline as a writer, which is finish a thing and send it out into the world and then write a new thing, Hmm. Uh, rather than just keep trying to perfect the first couple chapters of that one thing, which I know is a habit so many authors fall into. And so I wrote it and I just sent it out and I immediately got an offer on it, which is amazing. that's insane. That's not the offer we ended up picking, but it just goes to show that like, and this is a thing I always tell people when they're like thinking about publishing in traditional is it really is like editors are like, Oh, this will sell. Like they, there is a commercial eye on these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And definitely the first editor was like, we're not sure what this is, but it will sell. And then Orbit, who is my publisher that ended up purchasing the series or the first book and then a series for me off of the back of that book. They were like, we, we don't know, but we think it will sell. So, you know, it made us laugh. Let's do this thing. And, yeah. and they were very confused and they remain mostly confused about me my style and my career as a business the uh, like the <laughs> publishing business bu- model. <laughs> the publishing business is like we don't get gail like every time they send me a royalty report and i still make royalties on that first book which 12 years on is quite unusual uh, for anyone who knows the book industry 
Um, they're like, we don't, why are we still writing you royalty checks? They're like, we don't understand anything about this. That just so. kind of shows like how, how strange the publishing industry is right now with indie. In 2009, that was still like, indie was still kind of like, mm. didn't really exist actually. Yeah, they or were it was looked down upon. <laughs> it was definitely looked down upon. It was not considered a viable option. I looked down upon it, the self-publishing dirty word. But I have to say, I out the gate from a career perspective already was like, it was clear that I could go Indian hybrid. One of the first signs was that my book when now Orbit was relatively young when they acquired me, but Solace sold better in ebook than any other book that they had, hmm. which at the time was 25%, which of my my sales were ebook sales, which was a huge thing. <laughs> like, yeah. again, they were like, we don't understand what's going on here. And I think for me at that point, it was because the romance reader base had got a hold of me and jumped on that book and they were early adopters of ebooks. And so they were already like pretty voracious with the ebook reader arena, even in 2009. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was it's curiouser and curiouser. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the romance authors and readers I guess conjointly whether you know they didn't know they were working but that is around the time like I lived in Europe so I had a Kindle so obviously all I was reading was ebook and I think they were one of the the first like that genre to have podcasts mm-hmm. yep. they were the first to like have the the way to, I will like, say technically speaking I think sci-fi fantasy were the first podcasted fiction and horror okay that makes sense because they're more techie than that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but less future seeking, much slower adopters like Sephwa and the sci-fi fantasy arena, weirdly much slower adopters of newer tech in terms of like distribution models and capitalizing on self-publishing and stuff like that. But they were some of the very first fiction, at least in the United States that I know about that went to podcast, you know, chapter by chapter or what Interesting. Romance, I think, adopted e-readers first for a number of reasons, like Primarily because romance readers are incredibly voracious. They mm-hmm. read more and faster than I think any other commercial genre. And so they were like, we don't need to collect the physical books. Mm-hmm. Like they're, that reader base is not one that is into the like itemized collector objectness, which again, sci-fi fantasy is. Yeah, that's true. There's... I think, you know, like there are genres that really like the art of the physical book. Sci-fi and fantasy are in that. They like the art of it. Uh, romance is not. Suspense and mystery is not. And so in those like categories transition to e-reader faster. I also think romance readers really liked people on like public transport not being able to see what they were reading. Yes. Right? There's the embarrassment of those covers and that, you know, stereotype of being associated with reading those books, which I hope we're getting over now, but was definitely the key early on in like and so I, I don't think romance writers, re- readers were early yeah, adopters. Yeah, it's always so been like that, right? They didn't have to have bodice rippers on there, you know, like, right? They could just be have on a Kindle. Yes. And what's so funny about those, the covers that romance used to have, we're getting off topic, but still, <laughs> the covers that they used to have is there are some romance writers, many, many romance writers that understand their history. They understand literature. They have a well-developed story. You can learn amazing things like through these, these, stories and people will snub their nose at them because of the cover. <laughs> like, yeah. You used to always frustrate me. It's so true. And honestly, especially now, especially modern romance, which has really changed like the scope of rep- representation, like everything about modern romance is, is so forward thinking. And a lot of that has to do with having been like the forerunners, technologically speaking, and like very savvy businesswomen in particular within the romance genre. 
one of the things that I always challenge people is I think humor is one of the hardest things to write and a good sex scene is one of the hardest things to write. And I don't think you can write a good sex scene if you haven't read some romance. <laughs> like they just do it better than anybody else. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> this is true. This is true. So if you are a writer who's trying to write something that you don't read in general, but romance, don't do that. <laughs> well, but a lot of, I mean, I have to say a lot of like mystery writers, literary, lit fake writers, memoirists, whatever, will have sex scenes or emotional resonance, like intimacy scenes in their stuff. And like, if they haven't done a little bit of legwork and read some of the best romances, it's gonna be wincy. It's gonna make your readers cringe. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but that's like the last thing I want to do. So true. So. It's so true. So do you consider yourself a romance writer or do you consider yourself top, like more fantasy steampunk? So this is very interesting because I've wavered over 12 years. So I went through a phase where I was like, I really want to own romance and writing romance because a lot of my books are on what I would call like a romance chassis. Like the beats are very much like a romance in terms of like when intimacy levels hit and stuff like that. But I'm learning more and more that my reader base is not a lot. I have a, quite a few romance readers, but like most of them wouldn't identify primarily as romance readers. And so in a strange way, I don't, I haven't really earned the romance writer moniker because my readers don't see me that way. And I, I am kind of very much in a, an intimate back and forth with my reader base. So I think I don't get to have that. Mm. <laughs> I think some of my books are romances without question and nobody would challenge me on that. But uh, like one of the examples I gave is like there was a point where I was like, I would really like to try to write straight up small town contemporary romance. And I started to write it and it became an urban fantasy. It became <laughs> paranormal romance. I was like, oh, I cannot like there must be fantastical elements in my stuff. I can't leave that. So because it's what I read, it's what I grew up on. It's the fandom that I interfaced with primarily. Right. I think I if you had me. If you force me to pick a genre, it would be science fiction and fantasy. But I think I mostly just behave kind of like a YA author in that, like, there's this category of, that I play in that really mostly kind of encompasses all mm -hmm. of these tropes that are endemic to both science fiction and fantasy and romance and, and even a little bit of, like, cozy mysteries and stuff like that. I'll pick up and use them if I feel like they serve the story. And I'm at the point in my career where I, I don't really need to care about niching into any specific subgenres. And frankly, I never really did because I, I debuted into trad. I did really well in trad and I did really well with an uncategorizable book that to this day, people are like, what is Solace? And I'm like, I don't know. Read it and you tell me. You tell me. <laughs> Which like breaks some of the rules that everyone tries to so tell many rules. writers, right? Yeah. I think on Amazon right now, you're under like Gaslamp Fantasy. Is Gaslamp, that yes, that's a good category because it's very small another, so they come up with so many right now <laughs> yeah i get steampunk a lot which i right. think the steampunk you know that that i mean if you want me to subgenre and those books are steampunk like that yeah. is that is but they're very light-hearted they're not very hard sci-fi-ish steampunk they're on the sort of fantasy end of steampunk but, right yeah well <laughs> i think one of the reasons that you probably got picked up really quickly is you have a really unique voice and I think you own your voice, your writing voice very well. Like there, when you start reading your books, you are like sucked in right away to what is going on. You can see it. And you're very funny. You're very witty, like sarcastic. The woman, the 
well, I'm reading it now because you have other other main characters, obviously, but you can hear the main character's voice very quickly. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's I get that a lot. And I would call it sort of breezy, witty kind of that stuff is very Victoriana. Like I use purple prose, I break I break third wall, fourth wall occasionally. I head hop even in, in that first book. There's a lot of stuff I do that's very, in those earlier books in particular, and in that universe in, in which there are 21 books at this juncture, where I, I very much have informed by Victorian stuff, mm -hmm. by act like Gaskell, uh, to a certain extent, Austin Dickens in particular, also sort of late Victorian and into the 1920s, like P.G. Woodhouse. So like those are kind of, a, those that style of writing very much informs it because I really love those kinds of books. I grew up on them listening to audiobooks. So that's the voice kind of in my head. Mm -hmm. So that, that, I think that's what you're, yeah. And I sort of coincidentally early on in my career, it became very clear that that's what people like for me, but also that's like, so for example, my publisher wrote the back cover copy for Soulless and then asked me to write the back cover copy for Soulless as well. And this was in way back in the old days. Went and, and Orbit was very young, so they had a lot more communication with me as an author. And also, like I said, they picked up this weird steampunk book and they had no idea what it is. <laughs> and so I had unprecedented influence over things like cover art and cover copy. And so we were back and forth thinking about which one was better. And I'm also not very precious about my stuff. So I'm like, if you think yours is better, go with yours. I don't really care. But we put it up to the vote just to on my live journal back in the live journal days. Like, which cover copy do you like better? We don't know what to do. And it was almost 50-50, but most of the target demographic or what I believed at the time was going to be my target demographic, which was women readers. This was this was very simple demos back in life <laughs> journal days, okay? They liked the copy that I had written. Okay. And so to this day, I've written my own back cover copy for my publisher. They were just like, fine, like we don't have to pay you. You just write your own freaking copy. And I was like, Fine. But that gave me the skill set to transition to being hybrid and being a self-published author right. because I learned how to write my own cover copy really early on. And I do it kind of as I'm writing the book. So the cover copy okay. kind of slowly materializes as I'm writing the book. And that's to say that that cover copy is also very much in my voice, but mm -hmm. in copy version of my voice. And that was a sort of training mechanism for me. So that, that my tweets are in my voice, like my mm. blog posts are in my voice. It just carries over. And partly that's because it's me. You're listening to me. It's a little bit how I talk, but also like, I don't know, it just became this very kind of comfortable sphere for me to write in. And also it means because I have this very clear voice that the wrong readers get turned off real fast. Mm -hmm. And I want that. And I think, most authors should learn to love that. I have a blog post or a saying, which basically is you should learn to love your, your one-star reviews because they are telling both you and the world that they're the wrong reader for your book and okay. you can learn why. And then you don't target those people, yeah. right? You want to turn off the wrong readers with your cover art and your copy almost as much as you want to turn on the right readers. Right. That's what kind of the marketing side of this business is all about. And I got early lessons in how to do that. And one of the, the lessons I got was how to transmit my voice in such a way that makes it so that the readers I don't want don't follow me on social media. They don't right. interface with me. They don't join my group and then they don't read my stuff. And that's good. I don't, yeah. I don't want that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because you, you'll waste your time 
trying to get people to buy your book who aren't going to buy your book or they'll buy it yeah. and then they'll hate it. And then you- and then they'll hate it. Yeah. And then they get mad at you for yes. <laughs> like misadvertising to them or, you know, what have you. That's a really interesting idea though, that I think a lot of readers should take away, like to accept their voice, how it is and to start being fully themselves on their blogs, on their social media, in their books, and to just go with it. Like, yeah, lean lean, lean yeah. into it. Like, not to use a catchy phrase, but yeah, yeah it, it's just instead yeah, of being I, generic. I, I think for some reason we always want eighty percent of the people to like our book. We might accept that not everyone will like it, but we want like 90 percent, and that's just not gonna. Happen. It's not gonna happen. And like you, this is another like I think writers cultivating a like code switch between their writerness and their readerness is Mm. really healthy but like you as a reader don't like everything you read and everything you write like I as a reader don't like stuff my friends who like my best friends who are writers write like Mm -hmm. you know I'm like I don't read so-and-so stuff like I love them but I don't like their stuff like that's I'm not their reader that's not me we are very picky writers can be more picky than anybody else you have to expect that that readers are exactly the same way, you know, and the way I put it is like, I get that people love Stephen King. I cannot read Stephen King. I cannot stand Stephen King, you know, like, I agree with you. (laughs) That's just, but that's me. That's nothing. There's nothing wrong with Stephen King's writing. I'm not his audience, (laughs) clearly, right? Like the greatest writers of the world, right? Yes. But that, or, or, you know, the Jack Reacher books or something like, I just don't read books like that. I don't like them. I'm not interested in them. It's not going to work for everybody. And so we as writers have to accept that similarly, we're not going to work for everybody. In fact, we shouldn't and we don't want to, or at least that's my attitude. Yes. Yes. Um, And so leaning into the voice of how you want to write, how you want your books to be, I think it, I I don't think, I mean, you're pretty unique in that it got picked up and it got like pretty quickly and all that. So that is unique. But I do think that readers are always looking for what is authentic and they can tell right away. They might not be able to say it in so many words or they might not want mm. to accuse an author of not being authentic. But like when you don't like a book, it's kind of like, mm, I don't know, there's something off about this book. Maybe it's that they can feel this this writer isn't being fully or fully using their voice. They're not fully developed in that writing skill yet. Yeah, I mean, and, and my voice has changed and evolved over the years. Sure. It's bound to but I also think the like the kind of dirty secret of the craft side of writing, which I, I don't love talking about all that much because I think everybody approaches and actually conducts themselves mm-hmm. and does writing differently, but is that it's your voice that, and, and readers will, unless they're also writers, are never going to be able to identify this to you, but it's your voice that gives you your career. Mm. Like when I get an email from a, from a new fan who basically says, I will read anything you write. What they are saying is your voice resonates with something right. deep inside of me. And so, and and those are, that's a career. Like yeah. enough of those is a career because they are going to follow you if you want to experiment with a new genre, it, you know, that sort of a thing. Right. And, and there are always also going to be readers who are like, like when I started writing YA, I got a number of emails, which were very nice because I'm very nice readers. They're all very like, peace-willing, polite <laughs> readers as a rule. And they were all like, you know, I just don't read why I'm so sorry, but I'll pick up the next one that's a, that's for adults. And I'm just like, you know, I'm going to say you should give it a try anyway, because it's still my voice, but 
it's all right. And then countless times somebody has then written to me three or four years later. I don't know why I waited so long to read your sci-fi. I usually don't like sci-fi, but I read this one and it's still just as good as your other stuff or whatever. Right. And I was like, that's because it's my voice. What you're responding to is my voice. But um, yeah. yeah, and that's why you can have the different genres, which is another rule that you've broken. You know, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we'll just add this to your list because so many people say stop writing in separate genres. I don't know how many times people have told this to me. And I just like, I just want to walk away. <laughs> I'll say this politely. How can I say this? Um, yeah, just like, I, you know, I don't want to just write one thing. I want to write what I want to write. And so you yes. have cross genres and I think yeah. you have the key there is to write in your voice and yeah. people will follow you. I did establish an ecosystem of trust really mm -hmm. early on though, because what I did was write five books relatively quickly for a traditional author in one genre with like as a con concise series that finished and finished well. One of my strengths as a writer is ending things. Mm. I love writing the ends of books and I love writing the last books in series. I feel like that shows that like love of it. I love the tidy bow. I like finishing things up. I think life doesn't work that way and I'm writing fantasy. So I love that. I still always get people being like, why won't there be more? But that you want that, like you want right. to leave the party when you're still enjoying it. Right? right. But then I switched to YA, but in the same universe and in the same tonality, kind of, and with the same right. kind of like tropes and approaches and stuff like that, you know, back the same backbone. And then I wrote a spinoff from that first series. So I have like a consistent, solid number of books that are all series that are all linked together and that are all in the same world that kind of really managed reader expectations. And so it was a lot of meat. And that gave trust to mm -hmm. like my readers were like, oh, Gail does these sorts of things. She gives us happiness and comfort. She finishes her series. She does all of these things. Right. And so now that really, they will cut me a lot of slack with experimentation, kind of my reader base will, because they trust me yeah. because of, because I've done proof of concept basically. That makes sense though. But I, but that just means when, when people come to me and advice about sort of starting out and, and wanting to genre hop, I always say like, Sure, but like I would still recommend like obeying the the business rules of the genre first. Mm -hmm. So like if you're going to write a cozy mystery series, write a cozy mystery series, write at least three books in that series so that people know you can do that and you 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 obey those rules of those kind of series worlds and how cozy mysteries work or, or whatever. Um, and then you can try contemporary yeah, romance that makes or what sense. have you. And, and that way, like the readers are just a little bit more familiar with you and your voice and kind of willing to kind of follow you. But you will always have retention issues. I, I absolutely have retention issues. And in, in other words, you're always going to have readers who are like, no, I only read Gail's adult steampunk stuff. And there's nothing I can do to persuade them to try anything else. But that's, you know, that's but anytime I write an adult steampunk book, they're going to pick there. that one up. <laughs> it's yeah. true. So definitely build up your trust with the readers. I mean, that's always... That's always a good thing. And I like how you say you, you like endings. I do. I find endings very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's my favorite uh, part. <laughs> I find them <laughs> difficult in some places. Sometimes I know exactly what they're going, but it's funny because endings have come up in quite a few different writing groups that I'm part of, and we're always talking about endings. So you have a nonfiction book called The Heroine's Journey that we've sort of hinted at. Do you think that your love of endings is because you understand how to storytell 
you know, that you're not just a writer. We're not just, because we're all writers. We have this talent. We want to write. We have a story, right? But we don't always know how to story tell. <laughs> and there's like a difference. So let's talk a little bit about what is narrative structure? What, why did you write the heroine's journey? And what is storytelling? What's, how does it help us? So, uh, I mean, we, narrative structure can be talked about in lots of different ways, kind of like the beats, sheets of that sort of principle. I think, I believe it came out of the romance community, but, you know, the also suspense and mysteries also have these sort of beats. It's this sort of underlying pattern to narrative that's very endemic to specifically different genres. So we're, I'm going to put aside both memoirs and literary mm -hmm. fiction because one of the hallmarks of both of those two is they tend to play with narrative. But when you're writing in one of the commercial genres, so if you're writing in horror, mystery, crime, thriller, suspense, science fiction, fantasy, YA, which uses all of these things, and romance, of course, there are, there's a certain structure which you might not necessarily be able to identify as a reader, but it is, it is what, in a way, defines that genre. So tropes and narrative archetypes, those so certain kinds of characters and certain kinds of situations and settings are kind of the surfaceness of this. But there's also like theming and messaging and this sort of general set of expectations that different genres set up. And Campbell talks about one of these, which is the hero's journey. And another one is the heroine's journey. Mm -hmm. So Campbell's hero's journey is like with patterns of withdrawal and return, like moving into liminal spaces, quest narratives, general sort of solitary action, fighting the enemy, you know, success and then return. I mean, these are patterns that like, you can think about from movies or, or anything that you consume, really. And so the, the heroine's journey is just another one of these. It happens to be a chassis or a foundation that I really gravitate towards and have read, partly because I love a happy ending. Mm -hmm. That's one of the hallmarks of a heroine's journey is sort of unity and cohesion as part of a happy ending. And so I, I studied it uh, when I was studying classical archaeology and adjacent in undergraduate and I was like, why doesn't anybody talk about this? Why? Like, I thought everyone kind of knew about it much in the same way that I assume everyone knows the hero's journey. Uh, and then the more I did like teaching and events and went to conventions and stuff like that, the more I realized that most writers don't, aren't familiar with it. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I was just waiting for somebody to do a PhD thesis on it and then turn it into a book and nobody ever did. Um, there's Maureen Murdoch, I should say, has a heroine's journey and Alice Youngian self journey right uh, psychological yeah. approach which i just wanted to beat a beats layout and like a basic definition for writers and so yeah i was like okay guess i have to write that i so i wrote it. <laughs> you wrote it yeah i think um we were talking about before like writers and i've talked about it with several people they're not always trained on how to write you know it's, it's kind of like so many guitarists or a lot of artists they just pick up their art their tools and they teach themselves and they might take a few classes or whatever but like you said not a lot of people talk about the heroine's journey. I hadn't even heard about like specific the hero's journey until maybe five years ago because I, I hadn't sought it out. So that's really some of it. Like we don't really seek it out unless we're mm -hmm. looking to study it. But then it took forever to find the heroine's journey because you're always <laughs> like, well, not every story follows the hero's journey. Not everybody works heroes. Not every, and to be fair, not everybody fits heroines either. Right. You know, there's like 
Forex structure. There's right. like very interesting like storytelling structures, particularly coming out of Asia right now on the Halu wave, like, you know, with Korean dramas and things like that. So there's there's tons of different story mm-hmm. structures out there to, for you to access. Heroine, heroines just happen to be two. And I should say that that the hero doesn't have to be biologically male. Right. And heroine doesn't have to be biologically female. It's just the, the way we speak about the two journeys. They just have to be very, very common, particularly in Western mm-hmm. media. So, and particularly in the commercial genre fiction. So, you know, the, the ones that I named earlier. Uh, and that's because that has to do with the fact that those genres have Gothic literary, uh, okay. have roots in the Gothic literary movement of the Victorian era. So, okay. yeah, so that's very much informed, like the sort of feedback loop. I go into all of this in yes. the book. Yes, <laughs> but... we will have the, the link in the book. So why why do you think it is that even understanding a lot of these different genres, like having that curiosity as a writer to understand the narrative structures of different cultures, of the hero and the heroine, um, you have four act, all these things. If you get onto plotter or <laughs> you start going down that hall, yes. that hole, and you'll be like, you'll be inundated with all these yes. things. But why do you think they should understand where they're going in in their story or understand that structure. I think if you have a basic understanding of some of these structures, it's it's most helpful for writers because it it allows us to get out of a writer's block, mm. like first okay. and foremost, but also it allows us to control our reader's experience mm. and avoid the like dreaded reader betrayal. Okay. So reader betrayal, we've all experienced it. I, I know if you've read a book, you've experienced it. It is that urge to scream and throw a book across a room. (laughs) The book has betrayed you nine times out of 10 as a reader. We're just like, I have no idea why, but I'm so mad about it. Usually that is a core foundational reader betrayal. And it can be as simple as the reader picked it up thinking it was a hero's journey. You as the writer wrote it like it was a hero's journey. And then suddenly it turned into Mm. a heroine's journey or vice versa. So you did something like establish a heroine's journey, all about connection, family building, networking, adventure with others, adventure in order to build a family together. And then you killed your main character. Your reader is going to be so (laughs) mad at you. And so there's like, if you are writing in order to get the creative beast out of you and you're writing to entertain yourself and you're writing just to get this out on the page, that's one thing. But if you're writing with the intent to publish, that means you want other people to read it which means you want other people to enjoy it. And suddenly you're in a sphere where, yes, I think you do have to take their wants and desires into account. Otherwise, you're just going to make them mad. Yeah. Um, so so knowing these chassis knows what the expectations are. And it knows like what readers of your genre at core really want from like the basics of their narrative. So you then can manipulate mm. that and surprises and twist endings you can work yourself out of writer's blocks if you're like oh you know i'm on a heroine's journey like i need to throw a new character into this i'm on a hero's journey something should probably explode <laughs> at this juncture right Somebody like needs a they're just like basic <laughs> yeah exactly those sort of basic right. toolkits depending on which journey you're on and that all of that allows you to control like the reader's suspension of disbelief especially if you're writing commercial genre you want to like bring them into your world and support them and you want them to trust you to tell them a satisfying story. This is the thing. It's almost all writers do know Mm. them. They've just never learned how to consciously articulate them. Like all of us, when we sit down to write an adventure story or a suspense thriller or a mystery or whatever, we know what that means. It's a mystery. Like we know 
basically you got to drop clues. You're going to have a body like the body that's going to appear at like in the first chapter, like all of these things, right? Like we kind of have lost most of them, but being able to articulate a little bit more about them really just helps you have a, have a much stronger toolkit to provide not just a story, but a story that is very satisfying to readers. Right. And that's why I think it's kind of important right. to understand. And I, I'm seeing now, like, the way, the reason that you like the endings is because you understand the tropes that you're using, the beats that you're using, you understand what needs to come and go. It probably doesn't hurt as much to cut because you'll go back and say, oh, actually, I, I went off. I love editing. You're so right. Like, my favorite thing is cutting stuff out of a book. <laughs> I love the red pen. I'm such a weirdo. Have you always been like that though? Or has it been a developed? Yeah. I like to say I'm some sort of psychological cutter, like bleeding. I like to bleed on the page. I used to print my stuff out and like get as much red pen on that page as humanly possible. I'm a perfectionist as well. And it sort of ties into that. But yeah, I never thought about that as being linked to my love of endings <laughs> and that kind of thing. You're totally right. Um, I also, I'm also one of those people who's like, if the dessert is good, nobody remembers if you messed up any other small Ooh, parts that's of the so meal. True. Right. That's so true. Yeah. You have to nail the ending. There's nothing worse than getting to the end of the book and wanting to throw it across the room, burn it, stab it a few more times. <laughs> it, Stick the landing. Because you'll never go pick up that author's book again. I have a few of those. I keep no. them just to remind me. <laughs> there's a that's the thing about the reader betrayal thing that like that reader scream and urge to throw a book across the room those people will never read you like you you've lost Mm. them uh and that's another like sort of ties back to what we started with which is one of the reasons a strong author voice can actually work in your favor is you want to lose those readers before they scream and throw (laughs) your book across the room right (laughs) you want them to not even pick up the yes. book. <laughs> yes, this is true. I have to tell anyone who's listening, like this is a really interesting book, even if you're not a writer, because you'll start understanding movies and you even say like the fans of pop culture, you'll understand sort of this Western storytelling way that we're doing things. Like <laughs> I was telling my kids the other day, like, oh yeah, this is going to happen in this movie because of this. And they were like, what? And then they were like, how do you know like, that? Up. <laughs> <laughs> so you can do like magic tricks, <laughs> you know, if you want to, yeah. but you, you really understand. I think this is, this is key to a lot of, especially young writers. And I say young in the sense, like whatever age you are, newer, newer right. Yeah. And you want to get your book out there. And sometimes it gets out there and you think it's really great. And the feedback is like, either really lukewarm, like there's nothing that's almost worse than a one side. Like nobody <laughs> says yeah, a word yeah. because there's something missing. Or like you said, that writer's block where you're spending two years on a book because you're like, something is not going right or it just keeps rambling forever. And I don't know where, how to wrap this up. And this. this yeah. Helps. I had a bunch of people write to me after this book came out to be like, Oh my God, I've been blocked for two years. Cause I thought I was writing a hero's journey and I kept trying to force it to be that. And the story is actually a heroine's journey. And now I know exactly how I'm supposed to end yes. this thing. Yes. Yeah. So like I, well, now I have proof that it does. Ha- that's what I right. hoped when I wrote it was like that it would go out and like help people that way. But yeah, the, my most exciting thing is that people are like, <gasps> Buffy the Vampire Slayer, hero or heroine? And I'm like, oh, well, let's talk about that. Could be one, could be the, you know, like there's, because that's the other thing. It's not everything. We do love 
black and white as humans, but unfortunately they don't always comfortably fit into one slot or the other. So I also go into like what happens when a hero archetype is in a heroine's journey and, you know, what happens with genres that kind of combine the two body cop genres or whatever. But I think that you can do, you can push the limits of something better if you really understand what you're doing not if you're just like absolutely um, my story is yes. so unique no it's just a mess <laughs> yeah it's just a mess it's one of those where once you know the rules yes. then you get to break them right yes and for anyone who doesn't like reading nonfiction because you know we all are fiction readers this is written very much in your voice it's very funny it's very entertaining <laughs> thank you thank you I um I went through a process with this book where my agent and I talked about whether to sell it to a traditional like academic press or whatever, because I, I do think it is like important mm-hmm. enough to get that. But I ended up deciding not to go that route, partly because I wanted to write it in an incredibly accessible mm-hmm. way. I really wanted people to just like enjoy reading nonfiction um, and having come out of academia, as we previously talked about. One of the things I find most frustrating about academic paper peers is like, in order to be taken seriously, they have to be written very dry. And to me, that reads as boring <laughs> and therefore bad. I don't like to be bored when I'm reading things. Like that's the big sin as a, I mean, that, that's another thing, which I, I think probably comes across in this book as well, which is I believe that writers of fiction are entertainers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the categories we tend to fall in when you're looking at like market data and demographics and stuff. And so the biggest sin, the ultimate sin. And like you alluded to this when you write something that releases to crickets is what that's telling you is that it's just yeah. boring. And I would rather be awful than yes, boring. Yes, yes, you need a reaction more than anything. Yeah, and if something is too messy and you don't understand these chassis well enough and that's coming across to your readers, then they might just put it down out of boredom. Yeah, there's oh, nothing worse than so like sad. getting on that. <laughs> never finished list on Goodreads. Yeah. <laughs> that would be terrible. <laughs> but, and I, I also love, like, I don't think we're taught a lot of this in high school, unless you go get your MFA, you don't always understand like archetype and beat and POV and plot. And then there's nothing worse than being that writer, that sort of newish writer in a group that's like, what are we talking about? <laughs> what is that? What are you saying? Yeah, that was, so I, I you're alluding to yes. the fact that I have a little semantics yes. thing at the beginning where I'm basically like, I'm going to define my terms. So when I use them, you know what I mean by them. And partly that's because a lot of these literary terms like archetype or what have you have multiple definitions as well. <laughs> so I was just like, this is what I mean when I say story theme. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I will have the link in the show notes. Obviously, I really think that this is something that every writer should have on their shelf. It's very easy to read. And then it's easy to go back and like, sort of just review it. I don't know. And I think even people who are not plotters, you know, the pantsers out there that are very defensive about being pantsers, it will still help you keep on track, especially. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a whole section at the end. So I, I laid it out like because I come from teaching, I laid it out in such a way. So you can use the table of contents just to jump to the section that's most relevant to you as well, I hope. And the the ending section is basically how to write like a heroine. And that you can read that as a panther and just be like, okay, oh, okay. If you believe you're writing a heroine's journey, um, which some of you probably are, you can go into that section and be like, aha, uh-huh, like that's what I need to do with that side character. Da, 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 da. So it can actually be a tool for you to just flip to 
when you if you're pantsing and you hit up against a roadblock of some kind, you can just like flip to that little section and just like reread mm-hmm. little bits and it might help jumpstart and like get things yes, moving. Yes, yes, because there's for for pantsers. Although I have to say I am not a pantser, so like I try to help as much as I can, but I don't understand how your mysterious minds work, <laughs> panthers. <laughs> well, it, it, I think they're um, they're in that lane where they could end up being those who take a really long time. And if they have an idea of getting more books out quicker, then at mm. least understanding that structure and if they're writing a heroine's journey. And who knows? Like this, this will probably give them hints onto other stru- narrative structures. They'll go find it and it will help them go a yeah. little bit faster if that's needed. <laughs> if that's what We're you all want. Trying yeah. to help each other. <laughs> uh, some of my best friends are pantsers. And uh, we still <laughs> we'll have conversations occasionally. I still love them. Uh, we'll have conversations occasionally, but I will say that I don't envy the pantsers because I feel like uh, one of the things that pantsers tend to have to do is a lot more rewriting mm. than those of us who are big outliners. But maybe that also kind of ties into what we said about like how I love endings and how I love editing. Is also a lot of my pantser friends just hate editing, and I think that's just because they face up to a lot more of it. <laughs> no, nobody. There are probably people on both sides listening to this and being like, "No, I will defend this with all my life." <laughs> yeah. so funny what people argue about. No, honestly though, like speaking from twelve years of the future and like uh, like strict outliner who has become a much less strict outliner. Um, that's the other thing is the more you write and the more you do it, the more you're osmosing like mm. these beats and chassis and they just become an organic part of you, which makes them an organic part of your voice. And you start to instinctively learn how to lay them down and when they should be dropped or how to edit so that you self-correct for like the pacing issues and stuff like that, that, that many newer authors have. So it does get easier in that regard. And also if you're a pantser, you may become a little bit more of an outliner. And if you're an outliner or a plotter, you might become a little bit more of a pantser as time goes on. So don't sink your camp too hard because you might end up <laughs> this doing is true. it. <laughs> this is true. Um, and I think what you're saying is just keep writing. <laughs> keep writing. Absolutely. It's the best thing. You can yes. I was do. once told by, by a writer, I, <laughs> I can, I will never forget it. And it stunned me. He was like, just write your next book. And I was like, yeah. easy for you to say. And then I looked at his backlog and I was like, you only have 35 books. <laughs> you know? like, yeah, it is easy for him <laughs> to say because he took it his own advice. <laughs> Yeah, that is, if I had the one biggest piece of advice, and this is speaking because I'm a perfectionist, I think it is stop, move on Mm. to the next one, write something different, like, which I know is the thing that you're not told to do, but like, until you know if what you've written is going to stick and people are going to enjoy it, try something new. Because one of the life lessons that I had to learn was that that voice that, that you complimented me on, thank you it wasn't suited to what I initially wanted to write. I really wanted to write like high fantasy and epic fantasy and stuff like that. Turns out, at least back then, I didn't have the chops to translate that kind of breezy, witty, banteriness to epic fantasy. It just did not work. And I, I tended to overwork things and like, it was just, it was terrible. But I spent years writing that and it just didn't suit me or my style. Um, And that's just like, just, I had to try writing other stuff. I like that. In my case, um, it was in short stories as okay. well. Like uh, I, now we don't really have that luxury, but like I, the, the short stories that people would buy from me early on were always funny. And I was like, ah, 
the world is trying to tell me something. <laughs> you got to listen, especially if you want to be a full-time writer. I mean, in the end, there are like these pathways that we are destined to go down. <laughs> I guess so. I'm still startled. 12 years in, I'm still startled to be here talking to you. <laughs> well, if you want to find Gail, you just go to gailcarriger.com, but I'll put the links in the show notes. And it is very true that your your blog and your whole website is still in your voice and it's very entertaining. So <laughs> there's also on my blog, there's a, a tab, you know, for like mm-hmm. resources and stuff like that. And there's a whole thing there, which basically has like resources posts that I've written for newer writers and and more established writers in terms of like just basic stuff of you know toolkits like how I write like physically like what devices I use and all that sort of thing but also you know just like quick tips and trips so there there is a little section where I talk about or hopefully there's some good advice of course um, there's over a decade of advice there so this is we definitely need to go there yeah yeah that blog has been going all along (laughs) that's excellent well thank you so much for coming on the show it's been great chatting with you Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils Olympic podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.